Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. He writes for Project Syndicate. He has done so much for economics and for all of American graduate education. Laureate Michael Spence joins us now, of course, Senior Advisor to General Atlantic, as well as his academics. Uh, Professor Spence, thank you so much for joining. I want to talk about two things right now, and I want to go back to your iconic work on signaling. Um, I was talking with our Simon Kennedy about pandemic signaling. How has our behavior changed from the pandemic? Is there a permanence to how the American economy, our labor market, our investment, how it will change? Yes, there is. I mean, I think it's unambiguous. You know, the the, um, accelerated adoption in digital, the change patterns of work, the impact of the pandemic on what kinds of jobs people want to have, when they want to retire, and so on. I, I think betting that these changes will all sort of fade away would be one of the worst bets possible. So I have no doubt. I mean, Tom, you know, actually seeing in detail, you know, how this will play out over the next three to five years is a, it's very difficult. But but I, I don't have any question it's permanent, Michael, or at least some of it. In your latest essay for Project Syndicate, there are two paragraphs that are classic Michael Spence. I can see you with a piece of chalk in your hand at Stanford or NYU ready to throw it at someone who doesn't understand correlation. You talk about the magnitude, the size, or the growing size of our uncorrelated risks. All of our listeners and viewers know right now uncorrelated risks are off the chart. What does that mean for our society? What does that mean for our capitalism? It, it means a major shift uh, in priorities, both for countries and for companies, in the direction of diversification. Uh, and it will be, you know, portrayed as a costly move. It will probably increase inflationary pressures. But anybody who is, you know, operates in the financial markets or has taken a course in finance knows that when you have rising risks and they're relatively uncorrelated, the proper response is diversification. And, you know, when you add together pandemics, supply chain congestion and blockages and longer term effects, um, a war, uh, you know, and all the climate shocks that are getting more frequent and so on, I, I, I don't have any doubt that's the direction of movement. Um, that we're going to see. Well, and speaking of the supply side, you talk about the shift to supply constrained growth. What does that indicate about the permanence of some of the inflationary pressures that we are seeing? So I, I may be a bit out on the tail of the distribution here, but I, I but I think this is a fundamental shift. You know, the deflationary pressures that we had in the global economy came very substantially Um, from the fact that we had huge amounts of essentially unutilized productive capacity in the emerging markets. And we've used up a fair amount of that. And at the same time, we've created hundreds and hundreds of millions of new middle class consumers on the demand side. So I think this is it's a secular trend. It doesn't happen overnight. But but I think that plus all the other things that we just talked about, you know, means that the inflationary pressures are likely to last for an extended period. 
Michael Spence, you have made a study of the Pacific and with your wonderful book, The Great Convergence of China, as well. Angela Stent at Georgetown talks about a potential move back to a state of Yalta, where we have a triangle between the United States, Russia, and China. Do you agree we could launch back to something early Cold War? I think it's not the most likely outcome, but it's a possibility. So my take on what China is trying to do, and they're in a very awkward spot, so, you know, not dissimilar to the awkward spot and central banks are in. in. Um, but, but China understands something that um, President Putin doesn't seem to understand. And that is that any economy, even a big one like China or even the United States, can't perform at anything like its full potential in isolation. And so I, I expect China to sort of move carefully and and try to thread the needle, but to avoid uh, a scenario in which we start dividing the world up into blocks um, because it's in completely inconsistent with their rather determined, you know, domestic growth and development agenda. Michael, can we talk about the important stuff for where you are? Can you describe for a global audience the mood of Milan, <laughs> the morning after <laughs> Italy fails to qualify for a World Cup? Can you convey that to everyone for us? I don't... I don't think I can convey the depth of despair that we're all feeling <laughs> as, as a result of um, bowing out of the, um, the you know, World Cup. It, it's a shame. Um, we have a lot of talent here. I don't, I don't know why this is happening. We had some success before, but, okay. but it's pretty sad. Let me pick it up here. John Farrell, why did this happen? How did this disaster, this depth of despair happen? These kind of games happen where you play against a team that puts everyone behind the ball, defends for the whole game, you can't break through, they build confidence, they get that one chance and they score right at the end, Tom. It was just one of those games and they couldn't finish it. Chiesa was injured, one of our better players. That had something to do with it, but that's not a reason to go out to North Macedonia. But there we are. Michael, thank you. I didn't, I didn't know you were Italian, but anyway. Half Italian. That's very good. There we go. We're in the same boat <laughs> Half here. Italian. Which, side, like which, side, which side of Milan is yours? Inter or Milan? I think Inter. Okay. Well, I'm on the other Wrong side, side of that bet, Michael. Wrong side. <laughs> Wrong side. We might actually win our first title, Tom. I know. For the first time in, in more than 10 years. When we take the show to Milan, we'll have to schedule we, around we can do that, that derby. I, I believe that would be the first league title outside of the Berlusconi era as well, Tom. I was there the last time. Who's Berlusconi? Do you not remember Berlusconi? You missed that? I was in the San Siro the last time. I was at a party with him once, but... <laughs> you went to a party with Berlusconi. Would you, like to, would you like to tell us more? On the break. You sure? You can yes. share it with us now. We have some time, Tom. That's okay. As no? he coyly you sips his a, tang. Give it a miss. <laughs> sure, he had a lot of tang at that party. <laughs> Right now, we're going to go to the best, best choice, which is Ian Shepherdson is fortunate to be in the studio. Ian, we have to rip up the script here. And the parlor game, you and I don't play it that much. But nevertheless, you have to frame, a, as Orzag would say, glide pass or reaction functions. Do you see glide pass that get us to that stunning kind of move that Mr. Hollenhorst speaks of? Not in the time frame that they're looking at. I, exactly. The x-axis yeah. is the point of discussion here. Indeed. So I am very much of the view that the terminal rate is going to be way higher than markets think. 
But I'm also of the view that it's going to take longer to get there than City are now right. suggesting. So I don't really have a problem with the idea that we're going to end up well into the threes. And we may even hit four by the end of the cycle, but I don't think we're going to get there at that sort of speed. And this is about elasticities or the responsiveness of a greater economy. If you take the GDP function, if you if you get there short-termism out two years, boom, you go boom to economic growth, don't you? But it imputes to a weaker economic growth. Well, if they're going to hike at the speed that City are suggesting, even if you think that ultimately the economy can live with rates that high, getting there that quickly is going to really put a lot of stress very rapidly onto the, onto the private sector and, and will require a great deal of recalibration about how things work. So I am I'm really sceptical that uh, they may well get you know the first couple of 50s, but to carry on at that sort of pace, this is kind of 1994 all over again in terms of the speed and the scale of the hikes. Uh, and that ended up being very messy for the bond market. The economy didn't go into recession, but it was certainly under a lot of stress. And so I'm, I'm nervous that this is asking really a lot for an economy where there's probably some fragilities that we don't even know about yet coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and so I'd be quite surprised if the Fed is able to push on at that sort of speed without taking even a pause for breath. Well, Ian, we have to talk about the data too. And in there, in the line from City is the path remains data dependent. They just believe that the risk to inflation is still to the upside for the second half of the year. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, this is where I differ with them, actually, that, that I think that the glide path for inflation maybe even as soon as the second quarter, is going to be quite steeply to the downside. I'm feeling really quite optimistic about, in particular, vehicle prices, 10% of the core CPI. We'll hit the anniversary of some really huge increases this spring. But I also think the sequential numbers are going to be falling because we're seeing auction prices decline and supply is improving. And that makes a big difference to where you think inflation will get to by the end of the year and the speed with which it comes down over the summer. And if it's surprising markets, media and the Fed to the downside uh, in the summer, then the pressure to keep going by 50-50 is much diminished. So that may be where I haven't seen City's inflation forecast, but that might be where I I differ with them. You know, if you think it's going to remain very elevated for a a much longer period and and we're really going to struggle to bring it down, then yeah, they'll have to go more aggressively. But of course, nobody knows. We're in very much unprecedented circumstances here. So William, what do you think the strategy is? Front load it? wait until the summer, what would you do? What is the least bad choice? I think that they need to get a grip on on this expectations, uh, the idea that, that they've uh, got behind the curve and that they, they've left it too long. So I, I think they need to start making signals, and we're hearing that sort of verbally and in, in the dots and, and in Powell's press conferences, very clearly that they want to get a grip on it, they want to be seen to be getting a grip on it. But I think the narrative changes as we get into the spring and the summer, where, you know, if those numbers come to the downside, and also maybe if, if uh, growth, you know, doesn't have the traction that we all hope it has. You know, the first quarter headlines are going to look quite soft because of inventories. Uh, And there is a huge question mark over how the household sector responds to the surge in food and energy prices. You know, I think it'll be okay, but I don't know. It will depend on how how willing people are to run down some of their savings. And maybe they say, you know, we don't don't want to, in which case we're going to see some real sustained weakness. And again, that would suggest that starting with the 50 maybe, but keeping going meeting after meeting, that's, that's a big ask. Well, Ian, you talk about how things could get better as soon as the second quarter, but there's obviously an ongoing war in Ukraine. Is your interpretation then that that's not just going to show up as much in the U.S. economy as it will for Europe? Oh, there's there's no question that the the difficulties for Europe are are much greater on the back of the the war in Ukraine, much more exposed 
uh, to uh, to energy prices. Uh, energy prices were already a huge problem for Europe even before the invasion, uh, and um, and a, a much more uh, direct economic connections with Russia. So uh, it, there's, there's there's no doubt it, it bifurcates. Of course, it's even worse for emerging markets where people spend much more of their income on food and energy than we do in in any Western economies, uh, and where people buy much more raw, unprocessed food, and so they're going to see a much bigger hit. So uh, the U.S. Is, is is far removed from all of this. The feedback from weaker growth in in Europe and EM into the U.S. is actually quite small. This is a big domestic closed economy, really. Ian, the, the cottage industry of physics envy and economics is led by America, the ma- the idiot mathiness of the American programs. But I would suggest the United Kingdom has really studied the nonlinearities of when you make moves. And what Citigroup is recommending here is an inertial force upon the economy that's essentially, I believe, I mean, if Alan Meltzer of Carnegie Mellon was here, the late, great Alan Meltzer, he'd say, we've never seen this before, this kind of physic move in raising rates. Do we have any experience at this? Well, we raised rates very aggressively back in, in uh, the early 90s, but of course, the, the, the level of rates was higher, the the, the gearing in the economy was Stanley much lower. Stanley Fisher would say the gearing, you know, was different. Very, very different, absolutely different. And that's one of the reasons why we've had this long-term downward trend in, in nominal rates. But the UK is an interesting example. You know, it's, a, it's the Western economy that looks most like the US. There's some big differences, of course, <clears throat> Brexit. Uh, but the Bank of England is signaling pretty clearly they won't be raising rates very rapidly. And so what City is talking about is a massive widening of spreads between short rates in, in Europe and the US. And I buy the idea in principle that the US economy is fundamentally in better shape and yeah. less Ukraine sensitive. But it's the, sca- the scale of the <clears throat> gap they're suggesting in, in such a short space of time that it'll be difficult. Do you see how you make your luck, folks, on surveillance? When we invented this program, we said just book smart people. And when news breaks, John, it works out. Ian, can, I ask you, killed it. can I ask you, Ian, whether you think Wall Street, maybe even the city of London, is missing the mood of the country at the moment? Ah. Do, you, do you think it is? Well, I mean, if you look at the consumer confidence numbers, pretty much everywhere now, we've seen a round of numbers out of Europe as well recently, they have fallen off a cliff with, uh, with the Ukraine war. And they were weak anyway. I mean, some of the US surveys have been weakening really for, for some time. But the question is, is spending, is GDP the same as sentiment? Because if it isn't, if, if people say one thing and do the other, then if you're expecting the sentiment numbers to lead into a very weak economy, you could be getting it really completely wrong. And the reason why there might be such a big difference is that, in the US at least, households are sitting on trillions of dollars of savings that they accumulated during the pandemic. So they may well say when the conference board or the University of Michigan comes along and says, how do you feel? I feel terrible. But they still go to the mall because the money is there. And we've never seen this before. So that makes forecasting with any confidence really very difficult. And and I'm glad City said their forecast was data dependent because it sure is. Everything is very data dependent and we just don't know. We, we need to admit, I think, the limits of our knowledge here because we, we're facing uncertainty like we've never had before. Just to finish on this and stay on the same point if we can, Ian, has it been helpful to you to be headquartered in Newcastle in the north of the country, away from London? Has that contributed to a difference in opinion and outlook, a way of you, a different way of thinking about the country, the economy? Yeah, I mean, I don't do the cocktail party circuit in, in London or in New York, so I kind of I, I look at things maybe a little bit differently. Um, but you know, ultimately, I'm following the data like everybody else, and uh, the data at the moment are extremely confused, extremely confusing, and the range, the cone of uncertainty, is bigger than I've known it in 30 years. It's the season ticket back. <clears throat> well, if I can get one, it will be. Hey, so John. you want it back now, just to be clear. I do want it back now. You want John. it back now, okay? John, April 3rd, it beckons Tottenham, Newcastle. 
in Newcastle. In seconds. Yeah. Do you know how hard it will be to get tickets to that, Tom? I, I don't I think no people idea. realize how difficult it is to get tickets for a Newcastle game, a it home game. Now. Yeah. And what are the chances that you actually get your season ticket back for next year? Well, that depends how how willing I am to close my eyes and write a big check. But <laughs> so so <laughs> if quite willing at this if, point. If, if Adele shows up to watch her tots at Newcastle, how is Adele treated? Ah, oh, I'm sure she'd be invited Tom, to join us in along. Have you ever seen a Newcastle fan, Tom? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay. I've heard of you on now. So. Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, I think I went to a West Brom game, so that's in the Midlands, super cold, freezing, freezing. And the Newcastle fans, they pack out the home stadium, great away attendance as well. At the away end, the Newcastle fans, Tom, tops off. <laughs> Shirts off Painted. in the freezing cold in late December. Adele would never New, do that. Newcastle fans are some of the toughest out there, Tom. They're wearing they beer are. coats, John. Unreal. <laughs> Seriously, have they been affected? Sure. The Saudis have taken over the team, right? Have they been affected? Yeah. Quickly here. Oh, well, the, the city is thrilled. We're, By we're, Ukraine we're, and yeah, all that? Well, the, the, Ukraine, the, the Ukraine situation is, uh, is, is, uh, okay. is grim, but, uh, but the Saudi takeover has, uh, has been very welcome after, okay. after the disaster we of the previous years. We could go on and on. Someone yeah. wrote in, Tom, the game's in London. It's not in Newcastle. So it'll oh. be at Spurs. Oh, yeah, Chelsea's in So London. Adele doesn't have to yeah, sorry, travel. I thought you mentioned Spurs versus Newcastle. Yeah, that's April 3rd. Someone's just written in, the Geordies can come in their swim shorts. <laughs> Do you like that, Ian? <laughs> but it won't be me. From a terminal subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> Right now is my interview of the day, and not that I'm just back from Paris, and it was an extraordinary joy to see Paris preparing for the Olympics, but because he is hugely qualified with his public service to the French nation on this moment of war. Philippe Etienne is French ambassador to the United States of America, but far more has had tours of duty, particularly in Romania. He understands Eastern Europe perhaps more than anyone uh, entering the show. Ambassador thank you so much for joining Bloomberg. Thank you very much for having me. Ambassador, we have limitations. I cannot speak to you, of course, of the domestic politics of France. I believe that's off limit this morning. But I can speak to you of when I'm in London and I get on the train and I go under the channel and I come out. There are the fields of wheat of France. You are in the absolute agricultural nexus of the rich helping the poor with limited food at this moment. How will France help the poor of the world with their wheat and other agricultural products? It is indeed one of our duties and one of the initiatives we have uh, decided yesterday at the summits in, uh, in Brussels to take. Uh, France, like the United States, is an important producer of wheat, but, but we have collectively to uh, help the, the world community to face a, a food security crisis, which is one of the threats caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The first thing to do is, of course, to demand a ceasefire in Ukraine for the Ukrainian people first, but also because it would be the only way to allow the Ukrainians to sow their seeds and to prepare for the next harvests. But we have also indeed to take initiatives to increase productions, to increase coordination internationally, to help uh, all the countries which are the most vulnerable in the world and who depend from imports of wheat. 
Ambassador, the president speaks of 100,000 refugees coming to America. It seems like a tragic statistic given the millions coming over the borders of Romania, of Poland, and the rest. Can France provide, le can France provide leadership in Europe with the amount of number of refugees coming into France? Can that statistic be had? We have provided leadership because France is holding the rotating presidency of the Council of the European Union. And as soon as the war has started and as the refugees have started to come into the EU, we have decided as EU to give the Ukrainian refugees more than three millions already arriving to the EU European Union to provide them with a special statute, protection statute. They are schooled, they have access to healthcare, they have access to jobs. We have been doing this immediately. Of course, the refugees first come to the border countries, Poland, Romania, also Slovakia, Hungary, also mm. Moldova outside the EU. But now they are coming to other countries. And you see everywhere, including in France, a huge movement of solidarity for the tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees, which are already in France, in Italy, in, of course, in Germany, very many. So they are coming to us too. And as the EU, we have taken very, very quick and very bold measures to welcome them. Ambassador, you spoke of Poland, where, of course, the president of the United States is expected to land in just about half an hour's time. Before he did so, though, he was in Brussels with Ursula von der Leyen announcing that agreement on U.S. LNG. What is the French feeling this morning about its energy security and whether or not it is able to wean itself off of Russia? Well, even if France is a, a bit less dependent on imports from Russia than other EU countries, it is for us, as again, as a presidency of the European Union, it is a, a, a common problem. It is a European problem. The European leaders were convened by our president in Versailles two, three weeks ago, and they decided to stop the dependency on Russian imports of energy and also to increase in other fields, food, uh, critical materials, the resilience of our economy. It's a huge lesson to learn from this war and we will transform decisively the European Union. And to, to get rid of this dependency from uh, imports from Russia in energy means first to accelerate our transition and also to diversify our supply, including of gas. From this point of view, the agreement which has been announced by the United States and the European Union about this 15 uh, billion cubic meters additional of uh, American supply to Europe is really important. And we will diversify our supplies so that we get rid of this dependency as quickly as possible. Ambassador, in Paris on the River Seine, are those bright gold domes. They stick out like a sore thumb, and it is Russian architecture of the Russian Orthodox Church. Explain to us the new relationship of Russia that you know so well with your representation of the nation in Moscow. Explain the new relationship you will perceive of Russia with Paris and France. Well, for the time being, of course, we... We need to stop this war, and the relation is mostly that our president is among the leaders who has decided to continue uh, to talk to the Russian president, uh, to tell him that a ceasefire is absolutely necessary, humanitarian access is absolutely necessary. We have, uh, while we raise the, the sanctions and the price paid by Russia for this invasion, and these sanctions are really important now, we have to first, as a priority, absolute priority, to get to a ceasefire. And we are doing this in close coordination with the president of Ukraine. Of course, 
once there is a ceasefire, there could be negotiations. <coughs> and once there would be negotiations, oh. we could turn to the future. But the f absolute priority right. is a ceasefire. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Philippe Etienne, French ambassador to the United States. Jane Foley joins us, head of foreign exchange strategy at Rabobank. Jane, we've got 14 things to talk about, but we do have the news of the moment. What does Euro signal and what is your prediction of how it will move? You know, I think the euro is signalling uh, uh, perhaps uh, some optimism really amongst the market that the Europe will avoid stagflation, that it will avoid a recession. But there have been some nasty indicators this week. So you mentioned the IFO. If we go back a day and look at the PMI, well, we can look at the detail of that and see in those input prices, much higher prices coming through. Now, that is obviously one of the reasons that con uh, business confidence is, is beginning to flounder in the eurozone. We've got higher prices for <coughs> energy. Clearly, that's going to be more difficult for firms. And this is in a scenario where we can avoid blackouts. And, and that isn't, you know, a foregone conclusion. There is still the energy yeah. security threat for Europe. So <clears throat> there are significant headwinds, but the market taking an optimistic stance on that, at least for now. And what's so important here, Jane, is the belief, hope, or maybe it's not going to happen, that financial authorities will follow the confidence data. What is your reading of how central banks adapt to a diminished confidence? Well, you know, if you look at Lagarde's comments uh, just a few days ago, she said even on the, the worst case scenario, they're still going to have 2.3% growth in Europe this year, that stagflation will be avoided. Well, I would say that clearly that's not the worst case scenario. Uh, we, we know that there is a, a, a question marks over energy supply. No one can really in interpret what Putin is going to do. Yes, we know that he needs that money that he gets from selling energy. But at the same time, um, you know, there is still, I would say, uh, you know, a, a, a small prospect that there could be energy crisis within German industry, that certainly could, could bring on recession in Germany and in Europe, if not further afield. So there are risks. But for now, the central bank, you know, is, is, is I suppose, plying the market with, you know, this optimistic tone that, you know, stagflation can be avoided. And the market appears to be happy to go along with that. Jane, we were having a conversation earlier about the potential bleed through from a recession in Europe into the United States and what that would mean for the Federal Reserve. When you think about that, the dollar versus the rest of the world, its status as a reserve currency, the outlook for Federal Reserve policy, where does that leave you? I think the dollar is certainly going to be a lot stronger this year than it would have been otherwise, than it would have been without this war. Because as you mentioned, the, the dollar the dollar status as, as the payments uh, system currency uh, really, really make sure that people just need dollars. Um, and, and also if they want to buy commodities, back to basics, I think this is what this crisis is all about for many, uh, they will need dollars in order to do that. So the dollar, I think, will be stronger. But, you know, if we look at the shape of that yield curve in the US, if we look at the concerns about, uh, you know, the conversations about whether or not we're going to have inversion in the US, whether or not the Fed can really be successful in, in taking out inflation without creating a recession. There's got to be longer term, medium term uh, risks for the dollar into next year. But of course, that assumes uh, that the, that Europe can avoid recession. And, and, and that's something that will 
by the end of the year, I think we should know, you know, whether or not we've, we've managed to do it. But because by then, I think Europe will have helped secure more alternate energy supplies. But for now, when it's still using an awful lot of Russian energy, there is, I think, so much doubt, so much concern over the direction for Europe. Jane, you've just on t- touched on something I think really, really interesting and quite important. If we're going to build out this energy relationship with the United States, the Europeans are, how long before that starts to take an effect? on the currency pair. Are those kind of trade flows big enough to make a difference? Well, you know, certainly they are uh, significant. I mean, if we're looking at just the, the energy relationship, I think that's going to get bigger and bigger in terms of the, the, the US and, and, and Europe. And, 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 you know, for the European sake, you know, I hope that does come off. That There are a lot of concerns about, the, you know, the supply of energy. For instance, if you look at Australia, then that was a country that did promise uh, more uh, LNG, for instance, uh, for Europe. Uh, but there are concerns that uh, they may not be able to do too much of that without breaking existing contracts, that they may have some shortages on one of its own coasts. Uh, so they may not be able to provide, you know, alternative supplies. It's going to be a long time, I think, before we can really be sure uh, about the energy security situation in in in, um, in in Europe. But certainly, I think the, the flows with the US uh, will be really imperative to that. Jane, how important is it to discuss how people feel? And, and you know why I ask this? Because in the UK, when I speak to my friends, my family, they feel like it's absolutely dreadful. And when we talk about the outlook. We still have an outlook of 3% plus GDP growth in the UK, slashed from the six number, the six handle they had a number of weeks ago. Jane, does that matter? When Kayleigh Lines talks about sentiment numbers here in the United States, decade lows, we could see them again later on this morning. Does that matter? You know, it, it will matter eventually. And, and I think you're right. You know, right now I'm finding find it quite difficult to reconcile with, with what I'm seeing in the mainstream press about, you know, the, the struggles that many people here are having with higher energy and food prices and, and the data that I see, which is, you know, tight labour market with the Bank of England that has been tightening. But, you know, if we look at that statement from the Bank of England last week, yes, they did hike interest rates. But actually, the outlook was fairly pessimistic. They, they talked about, you know, slower growth. They talked about rising unemployment by the end of the year. Uh, and, and that is, is becoming reality right now. Yeah. And what we're seeing in the consumer confidence data this morning in, in the UK is really plunging levels of consumer confidence. Retail sales far weaker than expected. And yeah. this is the, the impact on the consumer from rising inflation. This is finally it's been having that, that impact on, on containing demand, which will eventually of course, bring prices down. Well, Jane, as you mentioned, the BOE tightening, the Fed tightening, the ECB may get there with a rate hike by the end of this year. Corona is not even close. The BOJ is not moving. You are seeing that widening divergence. A break of 122 on dollar yen yesterday. Where does it stop? Well, you know, that there is a lot of momentum behind there. I mean, it's certainly gone faster than I anticipated. At the end of the year, I had expected 120. That was my forecast at the beginning of the year. So 122 has really taken me by surprise. Now, you know, there's a, there's a couple of aspects here. Uh, you know, we have, of course, uh, um, uh, the, the interest rate differential story, the, the Bank of Japan remaining extremely dovish. But Japan is a massive energy importer. And if we look through the patterns that we're seeing in G10 currencies right now, now. Uh, we're seeing the energy exporting currencies, the Aussies and New Zealand, who uh, don't export energy, but they export food, uh, performing really, really well. And, and the commodities importing currencies right at the end of the pile, the, the Japanese yen at the bottom of the pile, if we look at the performance of G10 since the start of the war, and just above the, the yen, underperforming, uh, we have the European currencies. And this is a real rethink of you know what we would generally think about safe haven currencies, the yen 
what's a safe haven? It's right down there. And this energy importing nature of Japan is, is part of that, that reason. So for now, you know, it's very difficult to see what's going to stop that. Um, and, and I think there could be further to go on, 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 on the upside run in dollar yen. Jane, awesome. As always, Jane Farley there of Rabobank. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.